As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello there, how are you doing? Thank you for choosing to listen to us today on the Athletics Football Tactics podcast. I'm Ali Maxwell, really looking forward to this week's episode because I'm joined by the Athletics Football Analytics Gunslingers, the duo that is Tom Warville and Mark Carey, Michael Cox, away on holiday this week, recharging uh, ahead of the next portion of this season. Uh, Both Tom and Mark doing a huge, huge amount to advance the use of data insights in football coverage and working hard, both of you, to support other athletic writers with their articles, but also writing your own as well. And that and that's partly how we're going to approach today's episode. Mark, I do always wonder when I think about the workload of yourself and Tom, where on earth do you find the time? Yeah, it's, it, it feels like there's, there's not enough time in the day, but... Um... Yeah, I guess the, the the help that we that we give to a lot of the writers, some of it's you know bigger than others in some of the pieces, and always the writers do a great job of embedding the information that we give to them within the piece. Um, so I guess it's also credit to to the writers as well. But we're we're more than happy to to help where we can. And it shows and reflects just how interested the writers are, and hopefully the readers are uh, in the analytic side of of the game, which is good. I'm always fascinated from a sort of research perspective. You must have some seriously tight, efficient processes in order to to gather information to either help other writers or for your own pieces. You know, sometimes you're having to look all over for the right numbers, for the correct numbers, for, for you know, there's always a great depth in, in the, the, the amount of analysis that you can come up with. So you must really have a lot of good resources and a lot of good processes in order to sort of streamline your work. Yeah, and I'm not going to instantly just compliment Tom here, but I kind of am, and he's helped me a, a huge amount in making sure that I know what those processes is, because early doors, um, when I started the role, I was just kind of grappling for any information I could, but now I've definitely got a workflow that uh, allows me to do upwards of three pieces a day by the by the <laughs> looks of it on, on site. But uh, yeah, definitely got a, definitely honing my craft, shall we say. Big process guy, Tom Warville. Big, big <laughs> process guy. Tom, it's, it's so early in the season that... When we were chatting this week and planning a really data-focused episode or, or data analysis-focused episode, I should say, with Michael away, 
Sample size makes it hard at this point in the season, doesn't it? We simply haven't had very much football played thus far and therefore we must be pretty careful with any conclusions drawn. And that's why we've avoided doing anything too specific on that front. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a tough one to balance at the start of the season because it is very tempting to look at the numbers and see Arsenal have conceded 9xG at this point with you know without thinking that they had a red card against Man City and Man City completely went off against them. Um, you know, you've also got Wolves who look, you know, haven't scored a goal yet, aren't finishing their chances. But in terms of like on the defensive side, they've got the second best XG against, and they're actually creating a lot of chances going forward. So there are certain conclusions we could try and pull, and it's tempting. But there's a lot of context you need to add in now, which means that they maybe not be that robust, and in a couple of weeks' time, they'll be uh, completely different. What about for players, Tom Warville? Because I know that you like a bit of data scouting. Is it still too early for much 21-22 data scouting or are you already making some shortlists? No, I don't think it's too early. I still think you can look at what players are doing in, in individual games and making notes from there. Um, we've seen a lot of action in, in Liga in France already um, and a couple of players. I flagged uh, Mohamed Ali Cho, who was a 17-year-old winger playing for Angers, um, formerly of the, the Everton Academy, I think, and was, was kind of dropped, picked up by Angers' reserve side and now tearing things up in, in Liga. Um, Amine Gouri, as well as a, a kind of young French striker, uh, sort of in the Firmino mould, I guess. And he's someone we, we flagged on the, the site a couple of times and he started the season really nicely. Um and then Mohamed Bayo as well from Clermont Foot, who have just been promoted this season. I think three goals and two assists after four games. So obviously doing very well so far this season. Um, and I'm also happy to see Dominic Zobersly fit and firing for RB Leipzig. And he scored a couple of goals. One was kind of a, a direct free kick, which I don't think he was trying to score from, but was ludicrous uh, from probably about 45 yards out. And then the other was just a very Zobersly kind of like well-struck effort from the far side of the box, which part of you is thinking, don't shoot, it's a bad decision, don't shoot. And then you realise he's one of the most technically gifted players on the planet. Uh, and he dispatched it into the top corner. So I feel yeah, like a lot you of... and Sobersly have quite a tricky relationship. <laughs> Every time you talk about him, you seem conflicted. Yeah, it is a kind of head and heart thing, really. Um but yeah, he's he's teaching me a lot of things to to unlearn, which I guess is is nice, uh, nice nice couple of lessons to actually enjoy football again um, and not just look at the numbers. Okay, well we're going to talk about two of your recent pieces, both serious pieces of work, uh, I must admit. And Tom, we'll start with you taking us around Europe, a bit of a transfer window roundup, because of course in the last few weeks and particularly around deadline day the last week of the window so much focus on the big moves that happened people calling it the greatest transfer window of all time because of all of the the movement of top top players among top top clubs but what about elsewhere in Europe because I think personally for me and I suspect most of the people that listen to this podcast more interested in smart recruitment below the elite and how clubs can build from that position uh, than perhaps how those very biggest clubs operate in the transfer market. So first and foremost, you wrote about clubs from every uh, top five European league. Is it a case of just going on transfer market and spending like six hours just trawling through every signing made by every team in a major European league? Yeah, I mean, I, I use a bit of a cheat code. There's a, a page on transfer market for each league and it just has the tables of incomings and outgoings. Um, and so I scraped that page 
you know, wrote some code and saved myself manually clicking through all those pages and kind of downloaded all of that that data. And then I could quickly make some nicer looking tables uh, and have a look on my, my laptop. So a bit quicker there. Um, and that's, I guess, the merits of, of data analysis and using the kind of tools that we do is it, it saves a bit of time. Um, but yeah, pretty much going through all those tables and, and thinking, all right, what's the what are the interesting teams here to pick out and, and write about? You flagged up a few for each division. We've narrowed it down even further. In the Premier League, we want to talk about uh, a new member, Norwich City, although it's not been long since they were last at this level. And in fact, recruitment is a fascinating part of, of talking about Norwich City. It's something that they have excelled at under the sporting directorship of Stuart Webber, the head coach, Daniel Farker, certainly in terms of getting out of the championship into the Premier League, 10 out of 10 on that front. But two years ago, they were poor in the Premier League, relegated in 20th position with a paltry points total. And Stuart Webber took responsibility at the time, saying that he sent Daniel Farker to war without a gun, was the phrase that he used. And I guess, Tom, you flagged them up as interesting because it looks like they're taking a, a different approach this season. Do you think lessons have been learned? Yeah, I think he's he's given Daniel Farker a gun or a a pack of guns this time. Um, maybe some ammo. I don't know. There's <laughs> other ways you could take that. Um, but it looks like, the, I mean, I always find recruitment interesting because, you know, recruitment leaves clues around what the strategy is of a team, what they're trying to do. Uh, and, you know, you look at the Norwich side this summer and it's very obvious that they're aiming to get Premier League quality players who have either been playing less of their sides um, or play a little bit outside of the top five leagues and therefore have kind of, you know, are a bit undervalued. So you look at the likes of Pierre-Lise Melou, who came from Nice, um, 28 years old. I think he he's won a couple of years ago who was playing very regularly for Nice. Always looks solid in terms of a kind of battling midfielder who has an eye for a pass as well. And they've kind of seen his, his stock has dipped and they picked him up for around, I think, £5 million, which for a starting player... He's probably not on a, an astronom astronomical salary. That's a good bit of business, I think. Um, and then you see, you know, Milot Rashica, um from Werder Bremen. He's been relegated. His price also has dropped off, and they've picked him up for a, a fairly decent fee. And there's probably a difference between him and Buendia. Buendia has a much higher ceiling. Obviously, he's a, a you know a superior player. But if you can get you know a slice of Buendia for a much smaller fee, I think that's pretty good business. So um, yeah, I think they've tried to add top five. European quality level players across multiple positions without spending tons of money and for 60 million pounds roughly all in I think that's it looks like a good window mm. of course they've lost their first three Premier League games against Manchester City Leicester City and Liverpool a really tough start for them there will probably be some fans glancing at the league table and writing them off already with two years ago fresh in the memory um, but you're not doing so are you Tom you're actually pretty keen on their chances from this point yeah I think I mean, you look at the quality of the opposition they've had to face. They've had to face the champions. They've had to face the champions of, of two years ago uh, in, in Man City and Liverpool. Uh, and Leicester, obviously, are a good side as well. So I think you look at those, and if you're getting a point max out of that, you've done really, really well. Um, and, yeah. But if you look at the XG from those games, I mean, I've not looked at the game state from them, but the Leicester and Liverpool games at least looked quite close. Um, so I think that even irrespective of game state and the trying to chase the game, I still think that shows that there's a level of um, you know attacking quality there that they perhaps didn't have before, and they're perhaps a little one-dimensional with, with Timo Pukki uh, when they're last in the Premier League. I think a, a wider point as well with obviously with Norwich's recruitment is just how many players they have brought in and how that just takes typically just takes time to settle. I mean, 
Tom's right in terms of with both of you in terms of the the fixtures that they've had. But it does take time for for that many players to to settle in the squad and obviously in the team as well. And I guess to see how or predict how well they're actually going to do this season, it can be kind of <laughs> hindsight is a wonderful thing, right? So if you if you have a, a high turnover of players and it and it works, and as you say, Tom, they're bringing in more top five league quality across multiple positions, then you know that. If, if that works, then it's like right, it's very smart business. Or if it doesn't, you think, well, okay, well, they, they've just they've added too much too soon all in one go and it doesn't work for you. And I guess on the flip side of it, if you have, if you don't do too many, uh, too much business in the in the transfer market, then you could think, well, it needed a big fresh up. Or you could think that, okay, well, it's a settled squad and we need to, we need to keep that consistency. So I, I don't know, I feel like you can find a narrative to whatever happens and whatever outcome there is, you know, come the end of the season. So it's a tough one to predict. Yeah, I think they're also just trying to build sustainably as well, right? Mm. To the point where if they do go down again, you don't have to sell off all these players because they're on, you know, okay wages and they've probably got a, a wage reduction clause in their contract if they are relegated. So I just think, like, the way I visualise it in my head is they're trying to, like, hop into the Premier League and keep, like, falling off and hopping up, falling off. And then this time they want to hop and, like, land and stay there and then kind of, like, push on from there. And I think that... that they're doing that the right way based on the players they're buying, the fees and, and probably contract-wise as well. At the very least, you can be pretty sure that with Stuart Webber as sporting director, they will not get caught cold by relegation if it does happen. This is a side that's been planning windows and years in advance for a few seasons now, planning for, for all eventualities, really impressive uh, running of Norwich City over the last few years, I must say. I guess, to your point, Mark, there's almost a, a benefit to having played three exceptionally good teams that even at your best you would probably struggle to take points off at this point in the season if you have a lot of new signings who might take a bit of time to bed in and it's a bit of a strange almost defeatist way of looking at it but on the flip side we spoke about how Chelsea might benefit from playing top teams early on in the season because they look in great nick already and some of the other sides aren't necessarily hitting the ground running I suppose from a Norwich perspective again defeatist yes but these games are kind of free hits Uh, it's the ones against the teams around you the relegation scrappers that probably matter most and maybe taking them on when you're a little more settled could be the right thing I'm really looking forward to talking about AC Milan Tom because they're back in the Champions League of course for the first time in eight years I genuinely thought that was a typo eight years (laughs) since we saw Milan in the Champions League, but they're back. And I'd be interested to know how you would characterise their business this summer, how they're approaching squad building at Milan. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, I I think of Milan as a kind of vintage Champions League side from when I was younger, watching the likes of Pato, Ronaldinho, um, Thiago Silva in his, in his pomp, Dida. Like, there's some very um, big names there and, and, and the kind of Champions League nights for me were defined sometimes by, by watching them. So, yeah, definitely weird that it's been eight years. But... Um, they're looking to, you know, really gear up for that and both challenge for the title and challenge to be in the Champions League again next year. Um, and if you look at their business, I mean, they signed Fukayo Tomori from from Chelsea for a little under thirty million, um, which I think the the execs of the club, when they see the fee that Ben White goes for, uh, I think there's a good consensus that they've done a good bit of of work there uh, for a player of Tomori's quality um, to get him for essentially half of. Ben White, um, and he's probably on similar wages. That's, that's very, very good business. Um, they replaced Donna Rummer, who's obviously left to go to PSG with uh, Mike Minion from Lille, who obviously won the title last year. Um, he's probably the best goalkeeper in France. He's a good age. 
the fee is around 11, 12 million. Again, that just looks like good business. If you can keep him for, for five years, um, then you know the, the price of your goalkeeper per year is going to be really pretty low, and, and that's that's good for a, a player of his calibre. Bunch of kids, um, Yassine Adley, who's going to stay in Bordeaux for another year, um, can play kind of in a, a bit deeper in midfield, probably around where Benassa plays at the moment, or Kessier, um, and him for around 7 mil again is... It just looks good, and you look down the list, and there's just a lot of guys which they're spending kind of lowish fees, and they're good quality players. So that's good. But the other stuff I like as well is they use the kind of loan market really well. Um, Brahim Diaz on a two-year loan from Real Madrid, um, with it's not got an obligation, but he's 22. Again, wages probably aren't much of a problem, and he's a really good quality player, so that's nice. Um, Timo Bakayoko. Two-year loan, low fee. I think it's an obligation to buy at the end if certain clauses are met. And he's someone that I think the, the you know the higher ups at the club really enjoyed when he was there the first time. And I think they they've struggled to get him back uh, for a second stint after. And then Olivier Giroud, who is your starting striker, cost shy of a million euros. Um, and I just think Giroud is criminally criminally underrated, both as someone who you know followed him in his time at Arsenal a lot. Any any numbers you look at for him and Chelsea are just like very very good. I think we did a review of twenty twenty piece I think, and he was top of goals per ninety in the Premier League. Um, link up play is always really good, and it's just a very nice system. A kind of four two three one with him at the, the the top of it, and it just works really well. So yes, overall for them their business uh, it's a bit Brighton esque where it's not just in one basket. You know they've gone for the kids, they've gone for these guys that are a decent age and good fee a couple of older guys in in Giroud and, and Alessandro Florenzi as well from Roma for kind of low cost loans or, or buys so yeah overall um, a lot of a lot of interesting moves and hopefully means that they have a, a good Champions League campaign there's one that really stands out in terms of sort of human interest story and that's Junior Messias I, I can only imagine that in Italy they are making the comparison with Jamie Vardy in the UK Tom because of a fairy tale, meteoric rise over the last few years. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, Marseille is one who I think moved to moved to Italy from Brazil when he was 18, 19, I think, and, and kind of turned pro and was playing around like the Italian lower divisions, um, you know, Al Avardi in, uh, in England, you know, came through the leagues, moved to Crotone in 2019-20, I think, was there in Serie B, was there in Serie A and had a decent season last time around in this kind of... He had quite a free role in a three-five-two in one of the midfield spots. Was doing a lot of a lot of dribbling, a lot of shooting, a lot of stuff that probably caught the eye. Um, and you know, Milan have lost Hakan Chalnoglu to to Inter. Um, he's going to replace Christian Eriksen for them, so that kind of made sense. His contract was up. He was wanting a, a big raise, I think. Um, and yeah, Messias is. I mean, he's a bit out of step for Milan. Like, it's a loan from Crotone. And they were linked with with Roman Favre from Brest in, in Liga uh, and Adam Unas from Napoli, who are both you know younger. There's there's more value there, you think, if you can get those in. But they've gone for this kind of um, dynamic midfielder who's. I mean, if you've if you've read the piece, you've seen his, his kind of pizza chart. He's just you know all carries, all shots, and all the vibes really, which I think <laughs> is a is maybe not what you want from a squad building point of view, but from a kind of like, you know, I want to watch this guy play football point of view, uh, it's a, a good signing. Spot on. Uh, Atletico Madrid in Spain, the one to talk about because they're the champions of La Liga uh, and winning the title is one thing, but retaining it, as we know, quite another thing entirely. And and I find 
the transfer window following a title win, absolutely fascinating as a topic because mostly teams don't add too much for, I think, obvious reasons, really. And, you know, Mark talked about narratives that come with hindsight. The big one, if a team doesn't retain the title, is they didn't do well enough in the summer to refresh the squad or um, add some players with extra motivation or add quality in areas they needed it to. So I'm interested to know, Tom, how Atleti have approached it this summer. Yeah, I think they've they've kind of gone all in at the top end of the pitch with um, Rodrigo de Paul uh, from Udinese, uh, Matthias Cunha from Hertha Berlin and Antoine Griezmann as well on deadline day, which I think was a big shock. I think that's a, a year loan with an obligation for around €40 million. Euros. So considering they flipped him to Barcelona two years ago for €120 million, uh, that's smart business. Mm. Um, but it's interesting, like de Paul is a very attack-minded midfielder um, and when you think of like the the kind of classic Atleti midfielders and the likes of Gabi and Koke and obviously Saul is is moved on now to Chelsea on loan, but they're more kind of I can't think of the the right word for it, but they're almost you know very rigid in what they do. Workman they don't. Like. Yeah, I mean that's pundit speak, but I like it. Um, <laughs> they're not really that expressive, and I feel that that's what De Paul is. So it's interesting to see how he's going to fit in in this team. Um, again, looking at his, his kind of chart on the side and you look at what he does when you when you watch him, you know, the play runs through him a lot. And I, it just doesn't feel like the profile of a of an Atleti midfielder, so especially a centre mid. So where he lines up is is yet to be seen. But Cunha is one that is a very I mean, Workman likes probably a better phrase for him. He loves to press on the front, very good energy, very good presser, good with the ball at his feet. Um, I think he could have been a nice Firmino replacement had Liverpool kind of looked to move on that early. Um, but he very much feels like a, a kind of Costa-ish like player. Will work from the front. Um, is good with the ball at his feet. And he's not a kind of natural goal scorer, but you put him in this system around Griezmann and Joel Felix and you know he could elevate his game there. And then Griezmann, I mean, we all know the, the qualities of him. He knows the system so well. Um yeah, that's just a, a nice move. I mean, he's getting on a bit now, but you still think that if you want to retain the title, if you want to add more firepower in a year that Barca have got demonstrably weaker, Real haven't really added too much. Um, I think all of this business kind of is good for Atleti and gives them a strong chance for the title again this year. It was also a nice statement from them just to highlight how well they've done over the last few years directly in comparison with those two massive sides, Real Madrid and, and Barcelona in Spain. And of course, Atleti now the ones to beat. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And in Germany, in the Bundesliga, you looked at RB Leipzig, Tom, because 
I think for most people that the headline for them this summer in the transfer market is who they've lost. And that's probably the case every summer for, for RB Leipzig. Upper Meccano, Sabitzer, Konate have all departed, but they're a club, aren't they, who I think treat that as an opportunity rather than a disaster, rather than something to worry about. Yeah, I do feel with Leipzig at times, they're kind of playing chess when everyone else is playing checkers and they know that they're going to lose Kanate, they're going to lose uh, Upper Meccano. I think they were kind of resigned to losing Sabitzer as well and there's just no panic there. Like they already had um, Josko Gradiol lined up from Dinamo Zagreb. Uh, he featured the Euros and looked pretty solid. Um, he's just, you know, 19. He'll take some of the minutes from one of those guys. You've then got Mohamed Simakan as well from Strasbourg, who, 21 year old, 14 million pounds. Um, again, we'll take the minutes. We'll we'll get to that ceiling and probably be the next one on the conveyor belt to be sold. So they're just a very well-oiled machine at this point, and they work very well in the market. But the one that I quite liked is Andre Silva for less than, I mean, it's around £20 million, which is crazy value for someone who scored 27 goals in the league last season. Um, the most, I mean, Leipzig just didn't have a number nine last year. Uh, I think the most goals they had from a single player was Christopher Nkunku with six. So you can see that they had to spread the goals around. And uh, and that's also like a, a Nagelsmann system of, of having players from different positions being very versatile and being able to pop up as a goal scorer. But I think for, for Jesse Marsh to have kind of a focal point for the attack, someone in the box who is a bit of a poacher and times his movement really well, Silver for that fee from a, a rival in Frankfurt isn't a move you've probably seen in the Premier League. You know, it's kind of it's kind of Grealish-esque in the fact that it's like a big move within the league and we don't really see too many of them in the Premier League, perhaps. But um, yeah, that that for me and the rest of their window has been has been fantastic. And in Serie A, it's Juventus who you focused on because from their point of view, you win nine titles in a row, then that run comes to an end last season. Your biggest name player, Cristiano Ronaldo, leaves you. What do you do next? Yeah, Juventus is, is one, again, we talk about small sample in terms of games but I think for for Juve we need more windows to understand how their kind of strategies change because they've obviously lost um, Paratici who was the the kind of director of football operations or something like that title to to Tottenham and his approach to Tottenham this year was you know sign the best defender in Serie A and Christian Romero get Brian Hill in um, get Galini in goal as a kind of backup goalkeeper and maybe someone to take Larissa's um, mantle when he retires or when he moves on um and obviously with Paratici leaving, he, he'd orchestrated a lot of moves to Juventus of, of very high-profile players. Um, and that's been, I mean, the Juve model for years was get older guys, you know, the Perlo coming in, Arturo Vidal, um, Higuain, various others who are latter the end of their career, kind of squeeze a few good years out of them to win a title and progress to the Champions League and then just rinse and repeat and do it again and again and again. And this year we've seen that they've actually moved so far away from that strategy. Um, they've still signed one of the best young midfielders in, in Serie A and Manuel Locatelli. Um, obviously had a had a eye-catching Euros and I think that's a two-year loan with a option to buy for £35 million. Um, but apart from that, you know, Moise Ken coming back on loan. Um, Ihataran is a kind of young dynamic winger from PSV uh, for around £5 million. Pounds. I mean, this is, if you didn't have the name of the, of the team, uh, on the table and you're looking at it you're like I don't think you'd, your first guess would be Juve I think you'd be quite down the list of teams before you got to Juve so very much a, a change in approach for them 
then again, they have gone back to Max Allegri and there are t- a players still there that when he left previously that he likes working with. So maybe it's just he doesn't want to rock the boat too much. He's fine with the squad. Maybe it's to do with COVID. But overall, this is a very non-Juve-like window. And I think that in itself is pretty interesting. I think it's probably an, an obvious statement to make as well with regard to obviously Cristiano Ronaldo leaving. But I think one of the key things, again, in terms of the narrative was that the way that Juventus play was obviously geared towards Ronaldo and the, the system itself wasn't um, wasn't as strong as it could be because of obviously him being there. So I'd be interested to see how Juventus get on this season when they obviously have taken that talisman and that worldwide superstar away and they can actually operate more as a as a team rather than geared towards that, that individual. And hopefully, based on obviously what Tom said um, in terms of the signings as well as who they've already got in the squad, um, it'd be interesting just to see how much better they, they do this year as well. Yeah, I think one thing I failed to mention is, uh, again, going back to a bit of, of pundit speak, but Paolo Dybala coming back is like a new signing. Um, and, you know, he pretty much is the Ronaldo replacement that was pretty much injured for all of last season. Um, he's very much into kind of the, the golden years of his career, or should be. And I think that Allegri would just build the team around him. So, yeah, they have lost Ronaldo, but I think they also have a guy in the building who can is far more creative um, and able to do different things to Ronaldo and is still a very, very good player. So he's kind of the, the forgotten man, really, and probably, you know, he's like a new signing. They'll they'll build around him and he will lead their title charge, I'm, I'm pretty sure. The one that really caught my eye in Serie A was your paragraph on Spezia, a really bizarre case, you have to say, because they've got a, an upcoming transfer ban in relation to the transferring of minor players from 2013 to 2018. And it means that, Having stayed up last season in Serie A following promotion, they've now had to do about four windows worth of work in one go uh, with Thiago Motta at the helm. And, and you detail really well in the piece how they've gone about that. In Ligue 1, it was Nice and Rennes that caught your eye. Nice are owned by one of the richest people in the UK, in fact, James Ratcliffe. But they operate with a, a pretty clear strategy, don't they? And Rennes, talk me through them as well, Tom, because they've been impressive in Ligue 1 for a few years now and it feels like they're, they're really making a dart to try and join the, the top table. Yeah, I guess just a quick one on Nice. Like they very much have had some of the youngest squads on field in Europe in the past few years and their strategy is just, you know, keep keep that going. Um, a few older players to kind of pad the squad out who are probably, you know, lowish, lowish or mediumish wages uh, and low fees. And then the likes of Calvin Stengs, um, Melvin Bard, who is supposedly very, very good left back from Leon, and, and arguably the one that will get away from them, and they'll look back in a few years and say, "Why have we, why have we got rid of him so cheap?" So, yeah, Nice is kind of more of the same, but Ren really ambitious spending, like you say, Ali. A lot of guys in the kind of ten to fifteen million bracket, which you'd never really associate with a club like them, and it shows that the power of getting into the Champions League. Like they were in the Champions League last year, didn't fare too well, I don't think. Um, and you know they've still taken that kind of financial hit in the arm, and they've been able to make great strides and great progress to kind of catch up with, you know, maybe the likes of Leon and Lille and maybe even PSG mm. um, with with their signings. I mean, a couple which stick out for me: um, Kamaldine Sulemana from FC Nordschland in Denmark, um, young Ghanaian attacker who I know that the likes of Man U were kind of interested in, and he's kind of the profile that that, that they're looking for, but. He's one of those that I think Premier League clubs, and I think Premier League clubs can be quite boring and predictable in their recruitment. I mean, you know, Jack Grealish is the best player 
uh, in the Premier League last year, you know, so it's Man City buy him. Romelu Lukaku is one of the best number nines in the world. Chelsea need one, they'll buy him. Like a lot of them, is, it's just quite predictable for those sides. But for the sides lower down, you know, they're a bit less risk averse. And Suleimana is the kind of guy that for 12 to 15 million pounds, you could go a year early or two years early and get him now, nurture him a bit, maybe loan him out, depending on how you can make it fit. Uh, and save yourself 30 to 40 million pound extra in the long run because that's the level that I think that he will probably be at in a couple of years and it's similar as well with, with Lloyd Bade who um, was playing for, for Lons last year who have a bunch of young players in the squad who all are, are pretty eye-catching you know 18 to 22 year olds who play a lot of minutes in the league and they'll move like Bade has to a larger French side or a quite you know larger European side and then move to a Premier League team so um yeah, what we're seeing this summer really is probably the the seeds being sown of the guys who will be bought by the Premier League clubs in the next two or three years, like Bade and, and like Suleimana. Just to sort of pick up on the the Suleimana example, I mean people people who listen to this podcast will probably be aware of the him as a as a player in terms of his his story. I think is is really interesting as well. So he's part of the uh, Right to Dream Academy before, which was partnered with um, with FC Norseland. Um and the the academy itself is um, has been founded. About twenty odd years ago now, I think, by um, someone called uh, Tom Vernon, who had been part of the Manchester United um, setup. I think as, as the head scout in Africa, and just that that whole academy and the, their connection with FC Norseland, and obviously how they've championed certain players and getting them into um, into the top leagues now um, is a really interesting one. So probably just an aside from me, but I just think his his story itself is is a really interesting one. Yeah, I was looking the other day at uh, the average age of starting 11s across European football last season, and certainly Nice and Norseland, who you've mentioned, and then MSK Zelina as well, albeit I think for reasons that were imposed on themselves um, during COVID, are, are the, the youngest clubs across Europe, I think I'm right in saying. So interesting to hear two of them mentioned on the pod today. Um, brilliant piece of work, Tom. You can take a back seat for the moment. Let's listen uh, to Mark talk about his latest piece of work on the Athletic site. I find it fascinating for you guys particularly in that you don't cover one club and so for me the most terrifying part of your job is coming up with ideas for articles constantly and multiple articles per week because although it's great to have a a long leash I mean the opportunities are, are endless and I guess it must be quite hard to a, constantly be coming up with them and B, work out which are the, the best ones to move ahead with. So, Mark, I think this kind of fits the bill. You did a really big piece of work on site this week and you're kind of looking into streakiness or, I suppose, consistency in performance, to, to give it its its formal name. How did this piece come about? Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you sort of acknowledge that we do have so many different avenues that we can go down, um, which is a, a blessing and a curse, as you say. So I think that um, yeah, you're spot on there. But I think it's it's something that Tom and I have, have spoken about for, for quite a while on this topic. And it, it often starts, I guess, in football terms, which of course is the, the right way to go about it of kind of, I wonder if there's a way to measure this topic or that topic or something that hasn't already kind of been done before and going one step further, which is something we sort of, I guess, pride ourselves, you know, in doing on site. Um, that's your job, Mark. That's your job. Well, yeah, which, just, which I can't. Just doing your job. I can't believe that that is the case. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, we started chatting about it and just started, started chatting about sort of 
any way that we like any rudimentary ways that we could look at this sort of player consistency um, using data because it is something which I guess we all as football fans kind of chat about in saying that this player you know they're a great player but they do blow hot and cold sometimes or this player does go missing you know for a number of games but then they'll in, you know they'll also hit a purple patch from from time to time and there hasn't really been too much. Um, public work done it done on it in a in an analytics space there was something um recently at an analytics conference which touched upon it but it kind of sparked our our thoughts even more that this is something we could look into um using data so uh it's it's you know i'm already kind of caveating it it's not the the perfect piece of science so to speak or research but it's again something you know which we proud ourselves on site to open up that that topic, that debate um, for people to build off, have a think about. And I guess we're going to hopefully think about it more and more and try and uh, strengthen our findings uh, you know, in the future. And not to just be constantly banging on about how hard I think your job is and how hard I would find it. It's not just about coming up with the idea and working out if it's a viable piece of work, but frankly, in just trying to measure things that haven't necessarily been measured publicly before, you have to consider all of the variables that go into football and individual player performance and then work out which of them are most relevant, how to weight them by relevance in order to hopefully end up with a a measurement of sorts that actually bears some relation to what you're trying to achieve. So I find this fascinating and I I have no idea how you go about it. So so tell me, how do you try and approach um, measuring consistency in performance? I know you focused on on goals really on on uh, on the top end of the pitch yeah I think that yeah the, the short answer of why we did it more towards goals is because that's the most fun I think is the, sort of the long and short of it but it also is this sort of makes the most sense and it's it's you know easier to to measure obviously with the with expected goals as well as goals as well but um, it's it's something which I was you know very aware of when I was writing it that it can get quite heavy in places but so we're always trying to bring it back to the the football language and the football question in, in terms of then trying to answer it with with data um but i my my actual sort of academic background is is to do with um yeah research um and we we often would use statistical analysis to to answer questions in more of a robust way so i drew upon that a little bit when i was thinking of this whole consistency and and variability in a player's data set in this case we're talking about um the consistency of the the chances and the quality of chances that um that forwards get so essentially what we we're doing was looking to say okay well a player gets this many chances going beyond the the per 90 um, way of looking at it and saying rather than this player gets this this many chances on average what we wanted to say was okay this is how much they get on average but are they in their actual numbers blowing hot and cold and getting next to no chances for a period of games and then getting loads of chances for a period of games or is it that they're getting a consistent number of chances across um across the same number of games so for for the stats nerds like me maybe the the statistical term for that is uh, standard deviation in in a set of data and it's it's really simple in terms of what it is it's essentially a measure of how spread out the numbers are in a collection of, of data points. So um, in the in the piece, I use an example of Dominic Calvert-Lewin and Danny Ings in the, the, the rate of uh, goal scoring, but how they actually reach that rate is very, very different. So more of a broad example is that you can have someone who's scoring one goal per game, whereby they have achieved that by scoring two goals consistently for five games and then 
no goals consistently for five games. That average is still one goal per game. Or you could have a player who's scoring one goal per game consistently across 10, 10 games. Now, the person who's scoring consistently across 10 games is, as you imagine, the more of the consistent player. So that's kind of the, the reason why we're doing it and how we go about it in terms of using a statistical technique to, to actually quantify that. Tom, do you suspect, I know that we don't get a lot of information from the data departments within clubs, understandably secretive. Do you think this is the sort of things that recruitment departments at clubs will also be looking into? And, and how important is it to try and measure consistency, do you think, ahead of signing a player? It's really important in some in certain cases. Um, I remember speaking to a, a Premier League club scout a few years ago now and his club had signed a player... Um, and I won't say who it is, but essentially it was a kind of biggish money player for the for the team. And I was kind of asking his views on it. And he said, well, you know, I, I don't really see it. I don't really see why we've spent all this money on this guy. Um, I'm not sure kind of about the, the consistency. And he was talking about his record against the better clubs in the league was really poor. And he was scoring a lot against the, the you know, the weaker sides in the league. Um, and I think this is the kind of measure where, I mean, you could go in and you could break his numbers down between like, you know, top six or top 10 or ELO ranked teams or something more complex. But I think, you know, Mark's measure here of just, you'd be able to get a quick understanding of, is this guy consistent within a certain range? Yes or no. And then you can dig into the reasons for that. So I think, again, it's just a nice, like a lot of recruitment exercises, is just doing a lot of due diligence, asking a lot of questions, getting a lot of answers, and meaning that there's, you know, you're reducing the risk in your transfer, and the risk is just factors that you didn't know about at the time of the transfer. So I think again, it's just another nice box that you can check. Um, and certainly in that case, I think it was a move that pretty much failed, and it would have been really handy to to consider this when signing the player. Exactly that, and I think that's that's what's key as well. And I, I know I admitted that it wasn't, you know, most the most sort of statistically sound or robust, you know, piece of science in looking at this. But it's exactly as Tom says: is that it doesn't have to be because if its application is for simply for within clubs to say, okay, it's just another tool to inform my process, maybe from a recruitment perspective, then that's all you need, just as another um, crutch to say, is this player in this example here, is this player a consistent one or someone who does, you know, blow hot and cold so it doesn't have to be perfect it just has to help to inform the the decision when again from a recruitment perspective you're parting with millions of pounds then if it can help uh, in that decision making then it can only be a good thing i think another use case for the listeners of this pod really is how do you take this into account and this kind of approach with fantasy football like how do you look at the consistency of how a player performs picks up points whatever it is like you don't really care about the average in certain situations with players you care about are they going to consistently pick up a number of points depending on the opposition um, or not uh, and I think that's you know that's always something which how do you adjust the fact that yeah I could bring De Bruyne in but he's got you know three weeks coming up where he's playing Spurs Man U and Chelsea or whoever like whoever it may be what's his consistency like versus other players who maybe get fewer points but they are you know a good four pointer every single week something like that so um, yeah I think that it's it's almost like this is the the big kind of brother of per ninety stats, which hasn't been given too much attention, but is definitely uh, definitely pretty important. That that's, that's actually quite a good term, Tom. I should have used that in the piece. That it's the brother of it, but it's it's definitely exactly that way. You're thinking of the two together, in that you do you know it's still good to have per ninety, it's still good to have average, but this standard deviation, this variability, this added context of of consistency 
does and should go hand in hand with it to say okay well this is the the average that i found but i come back to it in terms of that confidence how confident can i be that this is what this this average is um is made up of um so it just kind of comes back to that really and i think kind of building on what you're saying as well tom is that there are many caveats to this as well as to towards a player's consistency and the output from the piece whereby it might ne- not necessarily be the player themselves who's consistent or it might not yes it might not solely be that but it's heavily influenced by multiple factors like as you say Tom a collection of games where a player is playing against the top six sides in whatever league or or the the team themselves are going through a, a poor run of form so the, the team's going to be inconsistent therefore the player is as well um, and yet yeah, league effects so you might be playing within a league which has a higher variability of the ease of the opposition so if you're playing against a really challenging side who are your rivals for the league uh, one week and then you're suddenly playing against the relegation candidates who that gap in quality is is far bigger in one league than another then that's also going to you know influence your your own consistency because you might be scoring or getting chances worthy of two or three goals against the, the relegation candidates and and next to none against your title rival so many other factors that obviously go into it and it was really nice to see the the comments in the uh, you know in the article of people engaging with that and adding those those extra caveats and, and wider context yeah absolutely i mean Mark, in terms of putting this discussion into context for the benefit of the reader, which is something that that you both do really, really well, you looked at the very top players in world football across the the major European leagues, the the elite, the cream of the crop when it comes to goal scoring, essentially. And that was how you framed um, using sort of real life examples, if you will, uh, of of applying this measurement uh, to, to the very top level. Yeah, again, the the reason for that is because it's it's more fun, but it's also more, as you say, you can you can explain it more clearly because it's all recognisable household names. So yeah, we looked at um, non penalty expected goals per ninety. So rather than just looking at goals, which has an element of outcome bias to it, we wanted to see how consistently the players are getting those chances. So um, yeah, we had the top top fifteen um, players in terms of their average non-penalty expected goals and uh, the usual suspects are on there of course Lewandowski up at the top um, Kylian Mbappe of course Lionel Messi Mo Salah so we had a a comparison all um, between players um, and then we decided to then look within a player again over time looking at their their consistency Um, but we did it across uh, four seasons as well I know we spoke about sample size at the start um, so in order to to have a more reliable output and again come back to how confident can we be that this is how consistent a player is we looked over uh, the past four seasons as well um, so it gave us a reliable output four seasons of course both a large enough sample size for you to be comfortable with and your favorite pizza um, <laughs> when you go down that route um let's pick it out a few of the players that you've written about we'll start with Mo Salah because and I hope I've read this right if not let me know I think Mo Salah comes out of this piece very very well if we're looking into who are the most consistent attacking players yeah, and I think that does instantly sort of pass the eye test as well, that, that Mo Salah has been one of the most consistent players, um, if not in the Premier League, then across the top five European leagues anyway, but it's it's very much backed up um, by the data. So again, looking at that variability, that spread of his uh, his non-penalty XG per 90 it was small that spread was smaller which is which is a good thing it means that he is being very consistent um, across multiple games and while his his actual rate his average wasn't all that high in comparison to the likes of Lewandowski and Kylian Mbappe it's 
it's certainly consistent or it has that smallest um, spread to, to suggest that he is consistent. So I guess, again, thinking of the context and the applications, that's brilliant for a manager to know that, okay, he might not be scoring two goals a game, but when I what I do know is that he's going to perform for me on a very consistent basis and he will get a certain degree of chances um, in every game, irrespective of you know the wider team. And again, I, I come back to it, it does have that element of, Liverpool have also been one of the most consistent teams across Europe as well. So it does play into to that fact. And um, again, the league effect, you know, the Premier League is one of the, the toughest leagues in, in Europe, if not the, the world as well. So he has to be consistent. He can't maybe have, you know, an off day like possibly and might be, um, you know, shooting myself in the foot here, but maybe some players or teams in Ligue 1. Um, or other sort of weaker leagues where there has that bigger gap um, where players can afford to have an off day. Um, Salah and the likes of other Premier League players maybe can't necessarily have that, so it points to a more consistent player within a more difficult league. Mark, this is a safe space, by the way. <laughs> no one has ever criticised anyone for saying something about football on a podcast, so you're, you're safe to uh, to go for it, say what you mean. Um, I, but just to dwell on that slightly longer, I mean, the fact that there aren't very many Premier League players involved in this group of 15 it certainly adds weight both to what you're talking about in terms of league strength it adds weight to the idea that being an attacking player in the Premier League even at a top top club that wins a lot of matches is a unique challenge compared to the other leagues because I'm saying because and you can tell me if I'm way off because of the strength of the league that the the standard deviation in terms of the opponents, the quality of opponents that you play. There you go. I've learned a phrase today. Yes, this is why I've come on. This is perfect. Um, no, I know this is again something that Tom and I, um, I believe we, you know, we've spoken about in, in looking at, yeah, just the top ten goal scorers simply, and I think a lot of them were made up by players in Italian Serie A and French league league, which does, yeah, point to the fact that maybe there is a slight. There's, there's a little bit more ease in terms of the chance that, chances that you're going to get. And it's it's something which I always find a, a really interesting topic of that kind of exchange rate of, let's, I mean, Lukaku being the perfect example, right? So he's just come obviously from Serie A, scored for fun. We know that he's a, he's a world-class striker anyway, but what is that exchange rate of what his goals are worth in Serie A compared to the Premier League? Will will we expect to see a drop-off? Maybe. I mean, he's he started really well, but um, it, it does just point to the fact that there's a higher quality of opposition um, and it's more difficult, a higher quality of goalkeeping as well, potentially, where the chances that you are going to, to score or even get chances, obviously thinking about expected goals, is slightly more difficult. So that exchange rate from making move a move from one league to another is really crucial. I mean, we've seen it last year with Timo Werner being the the uh, the poster boy for that. But it's, it's definitely something Tom and I have spoken about more generally in terms of um, the difference between leagues. Here's a tough question for you. Having read the piece... When we talk about Robert Lewandowski, based on the numbers and the way that they were presented in the piece, although you didn't say this yourself, am I allowed to say that he's been the best finisher at the very top level of the European game over the last few seasons in terms of his overperformance versus his XG? Well, what I tend to do is, is the coward's way out and hide behind the numbers um, rather than pass any opinion. Um, so what I'm going to do is do that again and just say that... Um, yeah, I mean, statistically speaking, last year he he did outscore his his non-penalty expected goals by eight point three goals, um, which we we show sort of graphically in the piece as well, which was the highest uh, or the greatest margin of, of any other player in the top five European leagues. So certainly last season, um, and I guess if I'm sure that across multiple seasons that average would be that Lewandowski 
does um, you know outscore his his xG, which again point. I know that we've spoken about this the last time I was on. I think that it points to a way of of measuring finishing ability, where if you consistently outperform your expected goals it's more than likely that it's because the positions that you're in you make the most of um and yeah you're by proxy of that a quality finisher so um i'm just giving you the numbers 8.3 goals that he outscored his xg by um but yeah i would certainly say that he's uh he's definitely up there as one of the best finishers in the world one thing i'm interested to ask i guess both of you mark's obviously written the piece but tom i'd be interested to know if you have any thoughts on this i like the fact that you framed it in the context of the most recognisable, the best attacking players in, in world football over the last few seasons. But I must admit, certainly as someone who's really interested in lower league football as well, in, in England particularly, I wonder if if looking at the top 15 attackers, you're probably less likely to find properly streaky guys because these are the best players. And I know that within that group of 15, there were still conclusions to be made about who was perhaps streakier or has been streakier than others. But do you think if you were able to, and I'm sure you'd need a lot of time and a lot of good resources, if you were able to make a table of every attacking player in English football, for example, do you suspect that players who play at a lower level would be streakier than those at the very top of the game? Yeah, I, I definitely think that's a, a really interesting question. I think, as you say here, in the, the examples that we gave in the top 15, um, if not the top 15 players, then it was amongst the, the elite players, that it's it's streakiness relative to each other, right? So as you say, as you go further down the leagues, you'd see more of a, a wider spread. But I think it's an interesting one, specifically going back to that caveat whereby the team quality can be quite streaky I suppose the lower down the league you go there's a higher turnover of players therefore the consistency of the the players themselves and the quality of chances that they get um, is going to obviously be um, be different as well so I think it points to the sort of the stability of the club potentially as well as the the player themselves but um, yeah I don't know if I'm just swerving your question there but I definitely do think the lower down the leagues you go the the more it's influenced by team effects. Yeah I, th- I think it's interesting because I mean I'm trying to work out in my head if if streakiness is a fact is a a product of kind of you know facing different quality teams is it that is it just luck and and variance and something that is just exists in the world or is it just that a player's technique at the highest level is more consistent whereas at the lower levels you know players the reason they're playing at the lower levels is because they're not as good and therefore they're not as good with you know with the way that they they strike the ball the way the positions they get into there's more kind of error and more ways that things can go wrong in the lower leagues and therefore you're more likely to to not be as consistent really um but then again also are the, is the quality of leagues of teams let's say in, in league one is it kind of a flatter league where all the teams are roughly the same quality there's a there's some of the top end are a bit better there's some of the bottom end that are a bit worse but i'd say in the premier league that's far more pronounced that man city are a lot better than than norwich and burnley are um, so there's a, a load of, like you said at the top alley, there's a load of different things to kind of like adjust and control for, which is is interesting. Um, but yeah, I'd say that perhaps they maybe are streakier lower down based on technique and not, uh, and, and you know maybe skill and, and quality of player rather than you are streaky because the opposition is tougher than weaker than tougher than weaker that we maybe see more of in the the better leagues. Well, I think you've both done very well there because uh, I definitely recognise that a lot of the things I ask you, I'm asking for a conclusion and those don't always exist and, and nor should they. Football's a, an infinite game, isn't it, where you'll never quite get to the bottom of it and you'll never get all the answers. But it's about 
discussing things. It's about considering things, trying to measure things, and then working out whether the things that you've measured are going to impact your decision-making uh, if you're involved with a football club or impact your analysis if you're a writer or a podcaster or a fan, whatever that might be. So I really appreciate you guys taking your time out today to, to chat about the two pieces that you've written with me and to answer some of my difficult questions. It's definitely been, a for me, a really fascinating discussion as well and, and hopefully for the listener uh, as well. Just a last one, Mark, because I'm, I'm hoping for more from you over the next few months. Uh, you've whet my appetite with this sort of thing. As touched on, goal scoring, dare I say shot taking, is one of the easier things in football to count, to measure. Um, and, and that was a good place for you to start here. I mean, could this sort of piece extend to other metrics? And if so, what other parts of the game would you like to drill down into a little closer over the next few weeks and months? Yeah, I, I certainly think to, to answer your first question, it can be extended to other metrics. Um, I, I think one that kind of catches my eye would be to just go right at the other end in terms of looking at it from a goalkeeper perspective I think that obviously we you can sort of draw parallels in terms of the the purple patches and the blowing hot and cold of, of certain players uh, in their form with goalkeepers and strikers so I, I know that I've come on this podcast before and spoken about goals prevented so looking at that difference between the the quality of uh, the shot on target shot that a goalkeeper has faced and how much they've actually conceded across the season and, and how that changes. Uh, I think that would be a good one just to look at it almost as a mirror image to see how consistent goalkeepers are. Obviously, you need to rely on your goalkeepers if they are throwing some in for, for five consistent games, then it's it's not great. So um, that's one that would be a fairly easy one to, to do. And I think that, um, again, from a recruitment perspective, would be really valuable to see how consistent is your goalkeeper. I would love to see that. You've already been on this pod previously to talk about analysis of goalkeepers and, and using data to get a, a better idea of goalkeeper performance than just how many clean sheets have they achieved this season, which uh, sometimes seems to be how people like to look at it. And there's a lot more to it than that. So shout out to the previous episode with Mark. You can find that if you scroll back a fair few <laughs> weeks on this podcasting feed because we've built quite the body of work over the last uh, 18 months or so. And we'll be back again next week, of course. Michael, back in business. I'm going to make sure that we uh, make the most of a fully recharged Michael Cox next week on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. A huge thank you to Mark Carey and Tom Warville as well for talking me through these topics today. If you head to theathletic.com forward slash tactics, you'll get a third off an annual subscription if you join today. And you'll be able to read everything that Tom and Mark have written on site and of course so many talented colleagues as well on the athletic site we'll be back again next week do let me know on twitter if you have any requests for topics or just quick fire questions that i can fire at the guys at the top of next week's show it's always really good to hear from you and thank you so much for taking the time to listen today to the athletic football tactics podcast we'll talk again next time the athletic <laughs>